0: All right, it's time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence
1: Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, another uh, week goes by and uh, the we got a cornucopia of interesting and challenging legal stories. It's amazing just uh, how many uh, challenging legal issues arise each and every week.
0: You know, I was looking at these stories today just to shaking my head, thinking, is this real? Did this really happen? It did. Mr. and Mrs. T referenced in what I'm looking at here. What exactly is this story here?
1: Yeah, this is a legally very interesting case, which comes from a uh, sad fact pattern. Uh, and it was a decision made by the B.C. Supreme Court just on December the 9th, just a few days ago. Uh, and the uh, issue uh, arose this way. There was a young uh, couple who were married. They'd recently become uh, parents to a daughter and very sadly, the uh, husband, father of the daughter, uh, passed away suddenly. Um, and that wasn't anticipated. Uh, he hadn't uh, done up a will or expressed his sort of desires uh, uh, after his death. Uh, but uh, he had, while well alive, uh, clearly expressed a desire to his wife uh, to have more children and to have a sibling for uh, their young daughter and uh, looking forward to being a parent. Uh, And so uh, his wife, uh, very shortly after her husband passed away, uh, brought an emergency after-hours urgent application before a Supreme Court judge uh, to ask that uh, the semen from her just-deceased husband be preserved so that uh, she would be able to conceive a child after his death. Uh, The medical advice was that That procedure should occur within 36 hours of death, and so it was an emergency decision that had to be made. And the judge in this case, on hearing that sort of after-hours application with limited um, submissions given its urgency, made an interim order uh, that that be done, that reproductive material be removed and be preserved such that that would preserve the status quo because if the judge didn't uh, make that order, well, that's it. There's not going to be any more... Discussion about this, and so the decision which just came out was the decision following uh, that uh, to determine well what 's to happen uh, with this should the wife be permitted to uh, use the reproductive material that was saved following her husband 's death and the challenge um, the uh, wife had, uh, even though nobody was really opposing this right there was no no other side showing up saying, no, no, you ought not to permit this yes. and in fact. The uh, judge asked for uh, lawyers from both the federal and provincial government to show up and make submissions. The federal government declined. The provincial government showed up and made some submissions, but they weren't really opposed to this. Uh, There's there's nobody there to oppose it. The issue surrounded an act called the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, which is a federal act in Canada that governs things, including, uh, amazingly, this circumstance Uh, and that act it says this, No person shall remove human reproductive material from a donor's body after the donor's death for the purpose of creating an embryo unless the donor of the material has given written consent in accordance with the regulations to its removal for that purpose. Well... That's a pretty big impediment to what the wife was hoping to do here, yes, uh, because this hadn't been contemplated. They were a young couple, they hadn't uh, nobody had considered the possibility of uh, this happening. Uh, and so uh, counsel for the uh, wife uh, uh, did their best at, at making a submission uh, surrounding the concept of what's uh, what the uh, meaning of consent ought to be there. Uh, and referencing the fact uh, that in a general way, the husband was interested in having more children. Uh, and they made reference to a, a case which, um, in which there was a, a person who passed away, a husband who passed away, after having provided uh, semen to a, um, while he was alive, uh, to be preserved so that it could later be used for the purpose of having children, but did not uh, provide express written consent uh, for its use. Although we talked to everyone about it, it's clear that's why it was done. It's, it's the only reason that would be done. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, well, that was a creative argument, the uh, court said, well, no, unfortunately, this language is clear. Uh, that's different uh, because it's not a matter of removing it after it was uh, provided before. Yeah. Uh, and so then I thought the alternative argument was a creative one. The alternative argument made by uh, the wife was that once the uh, material had been removed pursuant to the court order, it therefore became property. And when the, because the husband had passed away and because she would be the beneficiary of all of his property upon his death, the argument was, well, that's just another piece of property. So please give that to me along with the transfer for the car uh, and the house, right? Um, so that was a creative approach to it. But uh, unfortunately for her, it didn't get traction. Uh, the judge's reasoning was, look, Uh, This isn't property in the ordinary way, and it only exists because of this after-hours emergency court order that was made. That doesn't transform it into property and circumvent uh, what is uh, required by that uh, federal uh, legislation. And that federal legislation, here's another interesting point. Uh That uh, act that I uh, made reference to, uh, the Assisted Human Reproductive Act, that federal act, was actually considered by the Supreme Court of Canada back in 2010, from the perspective of whether the federal government has authority, constitutional authority, to deal with those issues or whether there's something which should be within the jurisdiction of the province. And the Supreme Court of Canada upheld it, and they upheld it as a valid exercise of Parliament's criminal law power. Um, So uh, that is the decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. We've got a valid constitutionally permissible law that says written consent is required. If you don't have that, you're not going to be able to do what happened here. So the the takeaway story, uh, or takeaway message, is put it in writing, uh, and uh, don't uh, necessarily expect uh, that uh, the unexpected isn't going to occur, and you're going to go on forever. So with modern technology and all of these things possible, um, I think it behooves people to think carefully about what their desires are uh, and put it in writing, so that there can be, uh, so that that could occur uh, if something unfortunate and unexpected does happen to you. So
0: this is over and done with, the material that was preserved will be destroyed now, or what generally happens? So well, I guess generally is the wrong term, It <laughs> seems very rare, so maybe there is no generally uh, expectation at this point.
1: Yeah, so the, the judge terminated the order, which was the order that provided for its emergency preservation, but the judge did uh, stay his order uh, for a period of 30 days, and the order was stayed in case there is to be an appeal. I was going to ask how long the material lasts and what happens if the appeals
0: take longer than the material lasts.
1: I think the impression left by this case is that the material can last a very long time once it's been retrieved and frozen. So it would be kept in a frozen state, and my understanding from the case is it could last years. But uh, in this particular case, unless there's an appeal from the December 9th decision within 30 days... There's no longer going to be any authority to keep the material. It's not her property, uh, and uh, it would otherwise be uh, uh, destroyed.
0: Interesting. We'll follow that one with great interest. Our second story here involves the transfer of a transgender female inmate to a male institution and whether or not procedural fairness was upheld. Set this up for us.
1: Yeah, this is a, sort of a uh, another example of sort of the uh, challenging issues that have to be dealt with uh, given... Uh, sort of modern realities and sensitivities to these things. Uh, the the background here um, is that the uh, inmate in question, and this is the first part, I must say, which isn't addressed in the decision, and in fact, uh, the court comments on it. The particular inmate in question has been incarcerated since 2014 on an extradition warrant, and there was no suggestion as to when the proceedings will conclude. So this person's been sitting in provincial jails of various sorts since 2014, waiting for an extradition issue to be sorted out. So my first uh, concern reading this thing was, holy smokes, that's a very, very long time to be sitting in jail waiting for that uh, decision to be made. Uh, but here's what arose. So uh, the particular inmate, Miss Patterson, um, she had been uh, in custody for some time, and about 10 months after she'd been in custody, she informed uh, BC Corrections that she identified as female. Uh, As a result of that, uh, she was uh, transferred to the Alouette Correctional Centre for Women. Previously, she'd been at the Surrey Pretrial Services Centre, which would be an institution for men. And so she was transferred there, uh, but uh, a short time after she was uh, transferred, a little less than a year, she was transferred in um, 2018, and then in August of 2019, there was a, and this isn't well described, but a, something described as a violent incident occurred. Hmm. And she was restrained and transferred without notice back to the uh, Correctional Centre for Men. Hmm. Um, and uh, she immediately uh, filed a notice to appeal that decision, right? Now, the, uh, her appeal was denied, and that's how the matter wound up in court to be decided, Now, the court application, the judge points this out. Um, She did not make an application under the Charter or under the Human Rights Code, arguing about the sort of the big issue about, look, is it appropriate to have a uh, female, uh, transgendered female prisoner put in a male institution? That's a big question, which isn't addressed here. This was being addressed on administrative law grounds. Uh, And the arguments made were, first of all, the decision was not reasonable. And the second argument she made was, the way the decision occurred was not procedurally fair, and both of those things are things which can be reviewed on a judicial review. The reasonableness threshold is a fairly high one, right? You'd have to show that the decision that was made sort of no, it's not reasonable. It's a yeah. pretty high threshold, yeah. Uh, and there's some deference there for the decision maker. But the other argument that the decision was made in a procedurally unfair fashion is one which, if it's not procedurally fair, Presumptively, it'll have to be reconsidered. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada has made clear that there are requirements for procedural fairness when there are decisions made about transferring inmates from one institution to another. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada has acknowledged that there could be some circumstances where sort of an immediate, on-the-spot decision is to be made where you don't have right to procedural fairness. Look, there's an emergency. You've got to go over here. Get in your cell. Yes. Right? But when it's not that... Uh, And here, after the immediate uh, sort of violent incident was dealt with, there are some obligations. And the procedural fairness obligations include these things. Notice to the inmate, we're going to do this. Giving them an opportunity to be heard, so what do you have to say about it? And then giving reasons for how you've decided the case. Here, the problems included, they didn't give her the uh, reasons for the initial transfer such that she could respond to them in a fulsome way. When she responded Uh, two uh, reasons when she was eventually told about them, Um, she responded dealing with uh, some of the substantive uh, factual underpinnings and the final decision didn't address what she had to say at all. It's as if there were ships passing in the night. And so the uh, judge in this case concluded that uh, even though she wasn't making the argument dealing with the constitutionality of this or whether it interfered with human rights uh, code obligations, on the procedural fairness argument alone because the decision of the institution just didn't contemplate what she had to say in response to it because there was a factual disagreement um, that the judge was not satisfied uh, that her um, objection to it was considered at all Uh, and uh, therefore the judge has ordered uh, that they try again uh, in accordance with procedural fairness and go back and reconsider the decision bearing in mind what she's had to say about it, um, and uh, we'll see what the outcome is, whether she's transferred back or whether there's further arguments about those bigger issues. Uh, I should note in the local context, there is an issue about uh, how uh, male and female prisoners are dealt with uh, in Victoria. Yes. Because in Victoria, we have uh, Wilkinson Road uh, Jail, which is our remand facility. Uh, And a few years ago, they started doing renovations on it to create a wing for women. Uh, And the renovations, as I understand it, were essentially complete, but it was never used in that way. And so what happens is that female prisoners are shipped every day over to the mainland uh, and back. And it can mean that female prisoners wind up uh, like spending nights sitting in city cells where there's no way to get outside. There's no shower facilities so uh, female prisoners are treated in a um, less favorable way than male prisoners who at least are able to go back to Wilkinson Road if they're uh, you know, engaged in a trial or this sort of thing, uh, whereas female prisoners can be either transported back and forth to Vancouver, uh, which is not pleasant uh, and, I must say, expensive. You have to send sheriffs back and forth to do that. Uh, and furthermore, if they're not transported every day, they wind up spending time in cells, which is, again, uh, not ideal.
0: Let's take our break here at CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan continues after this. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Earlier in the conversation, Michael, we talked about the complications that can arise from trying to guess the intentions of a person after that person dies in absence of some sort of will or, or executed legal instrument to convey those to a court. Uh, what's this next story about?
1: Well, this is an example of the importance of writing it down. <laughs> I guess that's a common theme along with the uh, first story. So this one, I actually think, has a uh, happy ending ultimately. Uh, and this is a uh, case uh, that uh, was decided uh, uh, just a few days ago in B.C. Uh, and it arose out of a uh, fellow uh, who uh, was living in a uh, single-room occupancy hotel in downtown Vancouver. Um, and uh, the description by the judge is uh, that this fellow was not wealthy, and then indicated it is common ground that he was not sophisticated. Uh, but he, uh, when he passed away, there were uh, there was no will. Uh, there were, however, uh, three notes that he had left behind on three separate pieces of paper, um, and the uh, the fellow, when he passed away, he. Uh, had, uh, he was never married, he was a lifetime bachelor, he had no children, uh, he did have uh, three other siblings, uh, however, uh, only one of those siblings was alive at the time uh, he passed away, uh, and then just a very few months uh, after uh, this uh, fellow passed away, uh, his brother passed away, who would have uh, otherwise inherited all of his property but for uh the import of the note or notes that he had left behind. Uh because when somebody dies without a will, uh there's a uh, process which would determine uh who the uh who would receive that person's assets under the Wills Estate Secession Act. It's gonna go to somebody's spouse if there is one, or children if there are any, and feeling that you're gonna go down the line to eventually siblings and so on and so forth. What, eventually, ab- what happens uh, if there's nobody? Well, the government happily fills in All that. Right. Uh, so okay. <laughs> that's where your stuff falls. That makes goes. sense. Yeah, uh, they wrote it. Uh, so uh, there, there we are. Now, uh, the issue here became this: one of the uh, unsigned notes that this fellow left behind um, indicated a few things. It had written. It said, "Pay off cremation and other expenses. Debts which I do not carry. I do not own any property. Total monies left over I wish to be awarded to and this is Miss Chow." Bank equals Nova Scotia. Not signed, no date. Now, what do you do with this? <laughs> Bank
0: uh, equals Nova Scotia. Equals now, Nova there Scotia. is an institution in one of Canada's five chartered banks, the Bank of Nova Scotia. Could we make <laughs> that leap? You I... might make that leap. Now,
1: here's, here's the thing for the judge, right? We, we've got that Wills, Estates, and Secession Act, and it says this. Uh, a, a judge can give testamentary effect to a document that was not properly executed, this note, and... Uh, as if it it was a will, if satisfied, that the document represents the testamentary intentions of the deceased. So, the first question for the judge is, well, uh, was this something this fellow wrote out? It's not signed, there's no witness to it. Uh, And on that point, uh, there wasn't any uh, contention. So, you have to sort out, well, what was the intention of this? And who's Miss Chow? What's going on here? Anyways, this is the nice story. It turned out that Miss Chow uh, had been uh, this fellow's girlfriend for many years. They had okay. met uh, when she had worked uh, cleaning uh, other hotel rooms for a company associated with the one he lived in. Uh, they had become boyfriend and girlfriend. She uh, was required to stop working due to ill health back in 2008. Uh, and the fellow had sort of helped her out from time to time with uh, expenses for things. So it uh, looked like, he uh, you know, we genuinely wanted to help her. The... One of the interesting things in that note I should mention is that it's a little bit contradictory because it begins with "I do not" or includes "I do not own any property," and then it turns out uh, that this fellow had two hundred seventy-two thousand and forty-two dollars in two bank accounts.
0: In and he was living in an SRO in Vancouver. That's right. Huh. Uh, that's not expected.
1: Well, no, but you know it's common ground that he was not sophisticated. So fair enough. And he did, in fact, have some property, and uh, he had that. Uh, he had that money. So this case was a case as between Miss Chow coming and saying, "Well, hold on, he's got this note saying that you know his intention was to leave that money for me," uh, and then the beneficiaries of the deceased brother, right? Uh, saying, "Well, no, no, that's not a uh, that's not a will. It's, this is not signed." the bottom of when the piece of paper had been cut off, the judge said, well, it's impossible to know what else was written down there. Uh, And so the judge said, well, it's quite reasonable for these two uh, uh, parties to come and uh, have me determine this. The other notes, by the way, uh, one was a note, uh, that one the judge described as the money's note. Uh, He'd also left other notes, including one he entitled executor, where he said, Miss Chow may do whatever she wishes with my personal property, clothing, etc., that one, the judge interestingly said, was not a testamentary document because the concept of an executor doesn't mean that the executor gets the things. They're just obliged to take the things and, you know, distribute them to the people who would be the beneficiaries. So, when writing on a piece of paper, executor, and then saying Miss Chow may do whatever she wishes with it, uh, isn't a clear expression that he wishes her to have his personal possessions. But... Uh, The document that the judge described as the money's note, uh, in the judge's uh, view, uh, did uh, amount to a clear expression. There wasn't any uh, issue about uh, whether he wrote it, Uh, and the judge concluded that the language used there, while a little bit contradictory, uh, was a clear expression of his uh, desire in terms of how the uh, money in the bank account should be dealt with. Uh, the postscript is this, and this is, I suppose, another reason why uh, you would be well advised to um, have a proper will. Yes. Um, is that this litigation, this case, was brought on, of course, by this reasonable disagreement about what do we do with these things and what meaning, if any, do we give to these undated notes found uh, in this fellow's room. Uh, and at, at the end of the day the the lawyers who represented both miss chow and the beneficiaries of the uh, brother of the deceased um they both applied to have their costs paid out of the estate okay. uh, and the judge concluded yes that's an appropriate thing to do and there's a test for that um and that uh, part of the analysis is that uh, look uh, this uncertainty you know it was genuine uncertainty uh was uh, caused by Uh, the deceased and how they left their affairs. It's reasonable for both of these people to come and say, you have to sort out this problem. Uh, And so at the end of the day, uh, well, it looks like his uh, uh, wishes are largely going to be uh, carried out in that his longtime girlfriend will get the benefit of the money in the account. Uh, Some of the money will have been used to uh, pay to conduct this uh, uh, legal uh, uh, escapade to sort out what uh, effect, if any, ought to be given to the note. So had he uh, drafted up by uh, even simple proper will, all of that would have been uh, avoided, uh, and uh, there would have been some certainty as to what about the uh, possessions in the uh, hotel room. So once again, like with the first story, put it in writing. Get a will. <laughs> Get it's a will. smart
0: thing to do. Thank yes. you very much. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Every Thursday here on CFAX 1070 during the second half of our second hour